The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media, and technology, authors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. In April of 1865, just days before he was assassinated, then-President Abraham Lincoln toured the smoldering ruins of Richmond, Virginia. He was somber, contemplative, urging troops to prioritize some modicum of humanity, the better to start healing the divided nation. 157 years later, Richmond's Confederate monuments are no longer, but the country in the wake of January 6th, when a Confederate flag actually made it into the U.S. Capitol, feels intensely divided. And so we study our history. The book is Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. The author is CNN's John Avlon. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ, NPR's news station for Virginia. We air on Spotify. We podcast to Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Joining me on stage at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business is John Avlon. You see him mornings anchoring CNN, where he's senior political analyst. He was previously the editor-in-chief and managing director of the Daily Beast, and he served as chief speechwriter for the mayor of New York during September 11th. Thank you so much. The book is Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. Thank you. John, the dean stole some of my thunder, but, you know, four score and seven hours ago, you were on Colbert, and now you're slumming it on full disclosure. <laughs> but for everybody to understand, it was wonderful. I got this email out of the blue from John Avalon. It was, you know, pre-COVID, well pre-COVID, way well pre-the monuments, saying, I'm coming through Richmond. I'm doing some research. Can you meet with me? And we uh, went up and down Monument Avenue back then. This was 2019. And we ate at Terrence. And then, I mean, 2020 happened. and you're here at a at a, a parlous time for the country. I mean, Dean mentioned that today is a, a very important date for global history, and we're here to ponder the country and the the planet and everything. And I wonder what's in your head <laughs> um, about this day in particular. It's surreal. I can't ignore it. For everybody in posterity listening, that Russia invaded Ukraine, what was supposed to be just a you know annexation ish of a couple of breakaway regions turned into what seems at least like Cold War Three. Well, look, spoiler alert, Putin lied. It's the most predictable thing in the world. Um, what I think is significant is that there's a danger, particularly when we don't know our history, to take our gains for granted, whether that's democracy or whether that's 75 years of relative peace and prosperity in Europe, which is not the norm in European history at all. And it's not just the beginning of the 20th century where we had two world wars in the first 45 years. I mean, the history of the European continent was fighting brutally between countries. Why has the last 75 years been different? It's because we won the peace. It's because we won the peace finally after royally screwing it up after the First World War. And that was deliberate. And that was intentional. 
And that was a US-led effort that brought together our allies to do actually precisely what Abraham Lincoln intended. What was his vision of winning the peace, which he never got to implement after the, the first, uh, after the Civil War? And that's unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace. That was Lincoln's prescription for peacemaking. And that's what we finally did after the Second World War. And I want to tell you the quote, the moment that actually became the seed, the genesis of this book. Years ago, because these things germinate over long periods of time, uh, I found a quote from General Lucius Clay, who's somewhat forgotten figure, but shouldn't be. He was the uh, American general born in Georgia, son of a three-term Georgia senator, born 30 years after uh, the Civil War. And he was Ike's guy who led the German occupation, the good occupation as it's sometimes known. And a reporter asked him what guided your decisions. And he said, I tried to think what Abraham Lincoln would have done for the South if he had lived. That's profound to me, in part because it's a statement of awareness about the continuity that can exist between the past, the present, and the future. And, and that's sort of the sweet spot for most great speeches, for I think most big ideas, for the idea of applied history, which is where we apply the lessons of the past to our present moment with an eye towards guiding ourselves to a better future. And that's what I've tried to do with this book. That's what Abraham Lincoln did, certainly in his greatest speeches and the second inaugural address. And the fact that some folks had taken democracy, liberal democracy, the liberal democratic order for granted, I don't think we'll do that as quickly now, but it shouldn't have taken this. This is a very serious moment in history. It does not need to be decisive, but the implications for the trajectory of the 21st century are massive. Because if Putin gets away with this, you know, one day it's Ukraine, the next it's Taiwan. It's about an assault on the international liberal democratic order. And that's why democracies need to stand up and apply real pressure so there is punishment for this kind of lawless, violent behavior. And that can be short of a kinetic war. But this is a real testing time today. And it's a wake-up call, or it should be for all of us. A few of the surreal um, tableaus that I remember from uh, January 6th footage, and we're still reeling from that uh, a good year later, is there's this one snapshot of the one MAGA rioter coming in with the Confederate flag. And uh, a person watching him in kind of an animal pelt is actually the son of a Brooklyn uh, Orthodox Jewish judge. Yeah, These are both kind of uh, banded together in some, on some sort of cause. A bust of Richard Nixon is overlooking them, and there's an abolitionist senator overlooking them as well. And they've both breached the halls of the U.S. Capitol. Meanwhile, outside, you see a confluence of the U.S. flag and the Confederate flag flying together, apparently in the same cause. I can't get my head around this. I mean, the Confederacy nominally ended 157 years ago, but there's a lot of unresolved business. There is. And, and we see, obviously, the strains erupting today. You know, having covered January 6th, having covered the Trump presidency, having written this book over the course of the Trump presidency. Uh, as editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast, running reporters in the White House, as an anchor and analyst at CNN, there were two things that struck me. First of all, that, you know, coming home to Abraham Lincoln was like medicine. I mean, here's a person whose essential qualities of his personality that directly inform his leadership are empathy, honesty, humor, and humility. But then you see the parallels in our politics all the time. And they're not precise. You know, Abraham Lincoln, or rather Mark Twain, uh, reportedly said, history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. But it's really important to keep an ear out for those rhymes. 
because it can be enormously clarifying. Because if you just listen to people at face value and you don't know the history and the context, you might not understand that it's an echo of something that was said before that was decidedly on the wrong side of history. Like the big lie is in some ways a new form of lost cause mythology. Think about it. It's a refusal to accept defeat, the creation of a whole myth that's entirely self-serving. But even then, the Confederate flag didn't make it to the Capitol. And the reality is that race and the Civil War runs through American history. It cannot be neatly excised. So we need to deal with it. We need to confront it. We need to understand it. And um, we still haven't done that. But we are making progress. You know, I'm, I'm an optimist because I don't see the point in being anything else. And, and we are making fitful progress towards that more perfect union. But the pushback we're seeing internationally right now, domestically over the last several years is serious. I mean, democracy, our ability to reason together is being challenged, is being threatened. I mean, the mere fact that we're still, that a small but loud portion of the population refuses to accept reality when it comes to an election result. That's a direct threat to democracy. The fact that it's persisted after the election, absent all facts, if that doesn't wake you up, you're not paying attention. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business, where our guest is John Avalon of CNN. The book is Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. John, you uh, spent so much of this book on Richmond, and you reported it here. And yeah. I, I just try to reconcile some of the names and places with the Richmond on I, t- I know today. I want to uh, quote before you do from some of it because it so struck me. He is here, uh, April, early April, eighteen sixty-five. Richmond is in ruins. There's the evacuation fire uh, downtown. Uh, Confederate troops set fire to various tobacco and cotton warehouses. There are African Americans who realize that they are free. They're out and about. There are wealthier people on Gray Street trying to protect their furniture. They're smoldering ruins. There, the James River has various turned over boats and and whatnot. I I just want to quote from this. Lincoln is here with his son, Tad. And it says, soon they stopped outside the infamous Libby prison at the corner of 20th and Cary Street, which was described one building above all others whose every brick, if voiceful, could rehearse a tale of woe. Now, in a role reversal, the building housed Confederate prisoners of war. The Hotel de Libby is now doing a rushing business in the way of accommodating a class of persons who have not heretofore patronized that establishment. It is being rapidly filled with rebel soldiers, detectives, spies, robbers, and every grade of infamy in the calendar of crime. The stars and stripes now wave gracefully over it, and traitors look through the same bars behind which loyal men were so long confined. Outside, a new order was already asserting itself. Chester saw a former slave owner being guarded by one of his liberated slaves. Hello, Jack, is that you? The past master called. The Negro guard looked at him with blank astonishment, not unmingled with disdain for the familiarity of the address. The rebel captive, determined upon being recognized, said entreatingly, Why, Jack, don't you know me? Yes, I know you very well, was the sullen reply. And if you don't fall back into that line, I will give you this bayonet. Lincoln stared at Libby Prison for some time taking care to explain to Tad, his son, some of the horrors that occurred inside. The crowd's fury bubbled over and they shouted, Pull it down! Lincoln quieted them and say, No, leave it as a monument. As a monument. The monuments were erected decades later, overwhelmingly, at the era of Jim Crow, the beginning of the 20th century, and this kind of revanchism for the lost cause, they just went down. In fact, I mean, the last of, I think, the Lee Monument, which was unthinkable. You just see hay and straw in its place right now. They've all been pulled out. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Arthur Ashe stays on yeah. Monument Avenue. And this is something that rank and file Richmonders said to me with a straight face three, four years ago, oh, that's not going to happen in our lifetimes. Because it hadn't happened in their lifetimes. And, and look, I grew up a significant portion of my life in Charleston, South Carolina. So I, I understand the South and I, I love the South and I, I get it. But I was a transplant from New York, so I never really got it. And here's the thing about the statues. You mentioned the fact that, and we'll work back to the Lincoln quote because it's one of my favorite quotes in the book. A lot of those monuments were put up decades later. It, one of the, the cases that is to me the most offensive that gives away the game is that the most modern version that I, I'm aware of was, Tom, was um, a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a Confederate general who was a, a grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He had a statue to him erected in the Tennessee State Capitol in 1970. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out what that's about. And that's an overdue reckoning. You know, Mitch Landrau, mayor of New Orleans, did a brilliant speech. One of the best speeches of the 21st century became a book about his decision to take down the monuments and that war over history and the war over identity and thinking about the, the, uh, the statues in a different way, not as simply assuming that they'd always been there, so they would always be there, but trying to see it through the eyes of his black friends and, and, and the citizenry and the message it sends. And whatever purpose erecting those statues had, long outlived it. And the definition of people who take up arms against their government is treason. It's traitorous. Now, we needed to heal as a nation. People need to think well of their ancestors. But there is a time when you need to look a little bit more squarely about the context of when they were built and why they were built. But they should be put in a museum. And, and new statues should be built to people that didn't have statues built to them. For a long time, who were exiles from history. You quoted that a lot of that writing that, that Robin just read is actually from a great journalist named Thomas Morris Chester. He was a black journalist working for the Philadelphia Press. It's a fascinating guy who is one of the minor characters in the book. He briefly was the editor of a newspaper in Liberia. He was highly educated from uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, tried to raise a militia, couldn't get the governor's approval, and ended up as a reporter on the front lines in large part with black corps, the, the 25th Corps, which was led by a German immigrant, 29-year-old guy named Godfrey Weitzel, who actually oversaw the occupation here in, in Richmond. Thomas Morris Chester's writing is brilliant. That story about the Libby prison, all the, the rhetorical flourishes, the Hotel du Libby is doing brisk business today. I mean, that's, that's him. And his writing throughout, I try to feature because he's an extraordinary American figure and a, and a brilliant, brilliant writer. But so many figures were written out of history. For example, the fact that Richmond, we, near as we can tell, was actually liberated. The first troop to, to enter the city was this African-American Corps, the 25th Corps. They, that was written out of history, right? They didn't get the credit they deserved. Actually, Black Union troops, I think, deserve disproportionate credit for turning the tide of the war. Those are the folks we should be building statues to. People like Thomas Morris Chester, people who were written out of Massachusetts history. Massachusetts 54. Massachusetts 54. Matthew Broderick and Glory. Right, it's one right, of my favorite which, movies. It's, it's a great movie and an even better soundtrack, in my opinion. Likewise, uh, yeah. But that, that does not represent them. We got 180,000 Black Union soldiers fighting for freedom, which do an enormous amount to change the entire tone, tenor, and purpose of the war, 25 of whom get the Medal of Honor. And, and so that's a story we need to be learning more. Going back to the, the Lincoln story, though, because that's a, that quote. Think about that moment, right? He's in Richmond. The, the, the Libby prison is probably second only to Andersonville in terms of its infamy at the time. He's with his son. He's explaining it. And the crowd shouts, tear it down. Now, the easiest thing for Lincoln to do would be like, give the, give the people what they want. Barabbas, you know? No. He does the more difficult and wise thing. He raises his hand and says, no, leave it as a monument. And what he's saying, of course, is 
We can't wisely erase our history. We need to learn from our history. We need to confront it, even though it would be much easier in the wake of a civil war to tear that down. This is a place of, of infamy and pain. But learning from history requires confronting it and then learning the right lessons so we're not condemned to repeat it. And that's what Lincoln is saying. And I think that formulation is essentially correct. You want to hear something crazy is, so 2017, when I had my book launch, I was considering this uh, speakeasy right there on 20th, right where the Libby prison was. Is that right? And they told me, oh, you'll like this place. There's a, it, it, there's a bookshelf that you have to give a password to and everything, and you go inside and it's a speakeasy. So it's quasi-literary themed. And she goes, oh, it's really historic. In fact, there was a, a, a crypt downstairs, a mortuary. And I realized as we were kind of in the Libby prison, I was like, I think I'm going to book this elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> but that monument remains effectively. Wow. Uh, all of these ghosts linger. I mean, the cobblestone, uh -huh. uh, the, the legacy of deep segregation here. If you go to Petersburg, the pools that were buried under dirt instead of being uh, desegregated. I'm thinking about this now 157 years later. And you're here at a, such a momentous time because what happened, uh, kind of a you know publicly televised lynching effectively in the United States. First, you saw uh, you know, spray paint on these monuments. I had the mayor on to start that year. I said, what would you do if somebody winched one of these down under three in the morning? And he said, well, we have the rule of law here. And then it just rapidly happened. And I thought that there would be something approximating the Unite the Right rally, which you saw in Charlottesville, but it was kind of fait accompli by then. Well, but, but the Unite the Right rally actually was, a, uh, I think, a critical moment because people were confronting uh, the ugly racism that was emerging in defense of these statues. I mean, you know, you've got the folks at the Tiki Churches yelling, Jews will not replace us. That's not real subtle. You know, the alliance between the neo-Confederates and the neo-Nazis and, 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 you know, as, as our ex-president said, and some of them, I'm sure, were good people. But it, 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 it's, it's an example of how you can go too far and create a backlash because people are forced to confront the moral stakes of what's really happening. What, why, the, why the strong kickback? Well, maybe it's not as simple as heritage, not hate. You know, UVA just put out a study a few months ago that I, I mentioned on CNN because I thought it was so instructive about this issue. They overlaid locations of lynchings in the United States with the locations of Confederate monuments. It's a high degree of correlation. And that's just something to remember. Again, there, there are stereotypes of the South that I am impatient with because they don't hold. You know, this idea that the culture of our country divides when you go, you know, still South of the Mason-Dixon line. Well, no, it's not true. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, are, are there divides that are reflected in the fact that the South switches its political allegiance 100 years after the Civil War when Lyndon Johnson, a, a Southern Democrat, signs the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act? Yeah, okay, that's, 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 not, that's not real complicated either. But the real difference is urban-rural. The vast majority of Southern cities voted for Joe Biden. They voted for Hillary Clinton. They voted for Barack Obama. I think like literally Oklahoma City, which is Southwest, uh, you know, is, is one of the only exceptions. So, you know, that's when folks, especially up north, get a little bit too stereotypical about the South, you know, try to push back on them because we're, we're not as divided as we think. The problem is the screamers tend to disproportionately dominate the debate and further divide us. And that's one of the things I think we need to, to, to push back against. Ken Burns says about John Avalon's Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, a stunning accomplishment and an essential reminder that the Civil War, the most important event in our country's history, is very much part of who we are as a people and a nation today. Incidentally, Ken Burns will be interviewing John Avalon this week, but hold that thought. Full disclosure, please stay with us. 
Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ Virginia Public Radio across the Great Commonwealth. We are up in Arlington, Virginia, and in D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. You can catch us in Asheville, North Carolina at WPVM. We are out in Ventura, California on KPPQ. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. And we podcast, of course, to Spotify, NPR, NPR One, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. If you're just joining us, we are live at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business with John Avalon. Uh, You recognize him on CNN's Mornings, where he's a senior political analyst and anchor, and he is author of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, uh, which we were talking about. I have to tell you, um, those chapters, that whole segment, it takes place in Richmond and Petersburg. Again, this is two weeks before Ford's Theater and Lincoln's mm. assassination. And he's almost very zen. He's almost ghost-like. There's something. He's there with his son. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the vibe I got from the book was that he kind of knew he wasn't long for this world right after he was reelected. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, he, he described himself towards the end of the war as, you know, Sometimes I feel like I'm the most tired man in the world. Um, and, and the war was weighing on him. He felt the responsibility of life and death acutely. And, and as, as you, you know, close focus into his final days, there is a, a, a fatalism that sets in, but also a grace. You know, the, the fact that he was shot on Good Friday, people made a great deal of. But I do think there's an essence, particularly in the last paragraph of the second inaugural, where he really sketches out the most eloquent vision of what it means to, to win a peace with malice toward none, with charity for all. That is, you know, I call New Testament leadership. It's a, it's a very Old Testament speech. God is punishing us collectively as a country for the original sin of slavery, and he's not going to let the North get away with a simple sense of moral superiority because they've been partners in this as well. He's also not going to let people get away with you know, saying this, the, the war was about anything other than slavery. He bats that down real quick. But it is a vengeful God exerting punishment on the people of the United States. And this is from somebody who, as a young man, said, as a nation of free men, we will either live for all time or die by suicide. So that, that sense that democracy was precious and rare in the world uh, was and needed to be defended wore on him heavily. And, and the mere fact when he's elected president, people are, are looking around saying, this is the least qualified man possibly imagine. He's got no executive experience. He's got no military experience. He's a one-term congressman from a political party. He was elected as a Whig. He's representing an upstart new third party, this Republican Party, which is a big tent coalition of folks who are run from abolitionists to people who want to stop slavery's expansion. He's an elected with the majority of the vote. It's a four-person race. Decisively wins. You know, Southern Democrats then refuse to accept the legitimacy of his election. They've already set up the psychological preconditions for civil war and secession begins. But he's got the capacity to grow and he's got character. And character is the single most important quality in a president. And he is a reconciler in a time of radicals and reactionaries, but he's able to move the country forward towards sustainable change in, in, in a way that I think still is, is, is revelatory for us. Frederick Douglass famously said, from an abolitionist perspective, he was tardy, cool, and indifferent. But from the perspective of an American politician, a statesman who's bound to consult the people he leads, he was zealous, determined, and radical. And I think Frederick Douglass got that right. Hey, study, I would love for you to read um, on page 132, the encounter with the Confederate General Rufus Berenger. Oh, Berenger. Uh, this 
this hit me. This again took place in Richmond. Just to lay the backdrop for you, in the smoldering ruins of Richmond after the evacuation fire, circa April 4th, 1865, you have freed blacks coming up and thanking Lincoln. Lincoln saying, you no longer have to answer to your master. Go forth, do this. You have some older Confederates heckling him. You have some people guarding their furniture and their prized possessions in the Capitol behind the wrought iron fences. And you have Lincoln amid all of this telling generals he's not worried about being shot. Various people send him invitations with shady circumstances and everything. But he is is deliberately saying, no one's going to kill me. Um, and then this encounter with Rufus Berenger, if you can Yeah, and, 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 and this comes in the wake. This and, and in one other scene, I think, really epitomize uh, Lincoln's grace uh, that provides such a powerful example in changing hearts and minds. He has just returned from Richmond, and which itself, I think, is one of the most dramatic moments in American history. And it gets short shrift, even in multi-volume biographies. And before we go, maybe I'll read a little bit from the introduction, um, because Richmond is really at the heart of this book. Lincoln in the Fall of Richmond is the name of the central section of the book. And he's done two things right before he leaves City Point, Virginia, which is the Union headquarters, which is behind enemy lines in effect. And it, it is it's a startup city. It was renamed after the word of Hopewell, Virginia. So you can take a short drive there if, if you'd like. It was right that, that nine-month siege of Petersburg. Um, but it, it contains a massive depot field hospital where there are rows of wounded Union men. And Lincoln, before he goes, says, you know, I'm going to go meet all the soldiers, shake their hand, look them in the eye, talk to them. He does it one by one. And he's about to leave. And he notices another tented area in the back. And he asked the doctor who's showing him around, kind of proud of the facilities. He said, well, what's, who's over there? What's over there? He said, oh, you don't need to worry about them. That's just you know, wounded rebel soldiers. And Lincoln talks sort of sternly and says, that's exactly where I do want to go. And he goes back and he meets each of the wounded Confederate soldiers, shakes their hand, asks their name. And decades later, they remembered it. You know, with Lincoln, it's kind of funny. One of the things people often said uh, in, in the course of meeting him, you see this in letters and notes contemporaneous, he's the ugliest man I've ever met. <laughs> he gets it a lot. But then when he starts to talk or tell a story, because he often speaks in parables, some light starts shining out of his eyes. Uh, I think it, it's, it's, it's sort of a stirred soul and a present heart, and it really makes an impression on people. So after that experience, He's back in camp. He likes to hang out in telegraph offices. He's really like, he likes to like relax in telegraph offices. And he's talking with all the folks there and he hears they have a, a uniformed Confederate general. And he jumps up and he's, wow, you know, I've never met a uniformed Confederate general. I'd love to do it. So they call over, this is Rufus Berger. He's a brother-in-law of, of Stonewall Jackson. And they bring him over to the telegraph office. And Lincoln stands up, shakes his hand, removes his reading glasses and stares down at the general and says, Berenger from North Carolina, were you ever in Congress? Captured general said he had not been. Well, he said, I thought not, said Lincoln, but my memory can't be that much at fault. There was a Berenger in Congress with me and from your state too. General says, well, that was my brother, sir. Lincoln beams. Lincoln loves old friends, particularly people he knew before the pressures of the presidency. He loves old stories. And he says, do you know that brother of yours was a chum of mine in Congress? Yes, sir. We sat at the same desk and ate at the same table. He was a Whig and so was I. I was very fond of him. And you're his brother. Well, shake my hand again. And they sit down at the table and they have a long conversation about Lincoln's days in Congress and discuss the relative strengths and weaknesses of military leaders in the South and the North. And as the general leaves to depart, Lincoln asks, do you think I can be of any service to you? And the question is so absurd in its modesty that it caused some of the onlooking Union officers to chuckle. 
And the Confederate general replied, well, if anyone can be of service to a poor devil in my situation, I presume you're my man. Lincoln puts his eyeglasses back on and begins writing a note, offering commentary, as he wrote. He said, I suppose they'll send you to Washington, and I have no doubt they'll put you in the old Capitol prison. I'm told it isn't a nice sort of place, and I'm afraid you won't find it very comfortable. But I have a powerful friend in Washington. He's the biggest man in the country, and I believe I have some influence with him. And while I don't ask too much, I want you to send this card of introduction to him. And if he takes the notation, he may put up your parole or let up on you a bit. Anyway, it's worth trying. Lincoln completes writing the note and blots it dry, hands it General Berenger. It's a note for the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. This is the note says, this is General Berenger of the Southern Army. He's the brother of a very dear friend of mine. Can you do anything to make his detention in Washington as comfortable as possible under the circumstances? A. Lincoln. The Confederate general choked up as he tried to express his gratitude. But after he left the telegraph office, Berenger was heard sobbing outside. And there are many instances of that. But what I think it shows is Lincoln's example of, of kindness, his determination to empathize with his opponents as a means of reasoning with them, to connect with their head and their heart, has the truly transformative effect. And what it makes many people realize is that they've been fighting for a lie. They'd been told that Lincoln in particular was a butcher, a tyrant, King Africanus I. But when they met him, they were so touched by his grace and by his determination to reach out and make a personal connection rooted in kindness that it broke down those barriers despite years of fighting. And, and, and that's a powerful example that is almost Christ-like in some respects because it's meeting hate with love. You know, it's the old Martin Luther King line. You don't defeat hate with hate. Feed it love. But that's hard. That's hard. But Lincoln really did try to do it. He didn't only do it in words, and he didn't only do it in public speeches. He did it in private. He tried to lead by his example. And that set forth incredible ripples. And, and that's one of the reasons why you see these acolytes of Lincoln go forth, because he showed that kindness was consistent with effective leadership. That's one of the most profound things about it. Can that be implemented in this time? Again, 157 years later. I'm struck at looking at the Electoral College in 2008, the election, I know it was a peculiar year. We had a financial crisis. Lehman Brothers had just failed. Various things were going on. Bush left office, pretty unpopular. Obama was a transformational candidate. I'm not sure the late John McCain was that popular within his party, but weird things happened. If you remember, I think Barack Obama won Indiana. He won North Carolina. This is the first black candidate, and then he wins the presidency. And then what you saw happen after that, uh, the president who followed Barack Obama, was very much kind of a repudiation of reaching out in terms of conciliation. It was doubling down on your base, doubling down on the polarization. A statistician would say it wasn't exactly Pareto optimal, but it has to a certain extent worked for the Republican Party. Well, it won't ultimately simply because if, if you know, Madison's Federalist Papers number 10 holds true. You know, the way you win national elections traditionally is by forming broad coalitions outside any one special interest. The danger we're confronting right now is as the parties become more polarized and we have asymmetric polarization, the Republican Party is much further right than the Democratic Party is left. But the Democratic Party carries the baggage of, of, of certain cultural associations that serve as an irritant. So you get a, you get a, a feedback loop. Um, as I write about the, the, the Confederates at the time, I mean, they're very often elites posing as populists who are fighting like hell to resist majoritarian democracy out of fear of demographic change. These are old stories, folks. 
And, and I think that's to some extent what's happening now. It's also a cautionary tale, I think, about the dangers of identity politics in any form, but especially its most pernicious and influential form, which is white identity politics. And America, we get into trouble when we tribalize our politics. To some extent, it's very human to want to retreat into tribes, but that's actually not what this country's about explicitly. You know, for all our faults and for all our, our fitful evolution to form a more perfect union, knowing that's something never going to arrive at, we're the only country that's founded on an idea, not a tribal identity. And, and we have made fitful, often very fitful progress. And one of the things the books talks about, the failure to win the peace after the Civil War because of Andrew Johnson's disastrous, bigoted, erratic leadership. The Atlantic described him as egotistic to the point of mental disease. But what he does to dismantle the, freedom, the, the Freedmen's Bureau, which was an incredibly innovative organization that was established by Lincoln to try to ease the transition from slavery to self-sufficiency, vetoing the Civil Rights Act, removing black troops from the South, empowering uh, former Confederates to regain power and impose the black codes, which was basically slavery without the chains, through legal means as early as the late summer and fall of 1865. I mean, and then... Grant comes in, gets us back on the Lincoln path. We get the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, the anti-KKK enforcement acts, which are actually used in a civil trial <laughs> in Charlottesville recently or being invoked in the, against the insurrectionists by members of Congress right now for trying to disrupt the official proceedings of the election. You know, we briefly beat back that first incarnation of the KKK. And then very quickly, there's an economic depression. There's a corrupt bargain around the 1876 election. A group called the Redeemers take power in the South, and they start wanting to cut funding for any institution that is effectively integrated. And you see through a pattern of voter intimidation, voter suppression, and election subversion, you know, the clock gets turned back. Progress is the opposite of inevitable. I mean, in, in one of the things I recommend, in, and it takes, by the way, over 25 years. This is a process. In, in I think 1898, 1899, there, uh, there are 180,000 registered vote, black voters in the state of Alabama. Two years later, there are 3,000. And that's history that, they, you know, we've not done a good job teaching, learning about our reconstruction history, but it's really urgent right now to remember that history. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you write the book. We, 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 we don't win the peace. So certainly consistent with Lincoln's vision, although he wanted a federalist vision of, of, of reconstruction. He wanted it to be bought, buy in from the individual states and be a little bit different in every state. And you can't do historical what ifs, but we basically traded reconciliation among whites for submerging emancipation and, 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 and that legacy to our great discredit. And slavery is replaced by segregation for a century. And, and we, we absolutely have to learn that history again. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business for another special Full Disclosure Live, this time with John Avalon of CNN. He's a, a scholar, former speechwriter, former editor-in-chief of Daily Beast, and the book is now Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. You know, I'm struck in reading this how self-aware Lincoln was in his final days about, look, you could rub it in. You could kick up your big, you know, I imagine his size 15 boots on Jeff Davis's desk in the ruins of his wallpapered, you know, mansion. And, and, and yeah, have a victory lap or two. This was the bloodiest war in U.S. history. But he's thinking about the future and reconciliation. And he seems to be mindful, even though he didn't say it, of a tyranny of the majority, of, of us kind of, you know, don't lay it on too strong with these guys. But now, almost 160 years later, there's a kind of a creeping of the tyranny of the minority. You know, there's a talk about some of these vestiges, like the Electoral College, 
new things such as gerrymandering or redistricting, the way the Supreme Court's been packed without people who've won uh, popular vote majorities, and a, a constant conversation about kind of how a, an end run was done around the systems. Yeah, and it's, again, one reason why you need to, to learn your history. And look, you're seeing things being discussed again. I mean, the Civil War generation gave us a bunch of tools to deal with insurrectionists with an explicit idea that it could be applied in the future, like the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which bars people who've uh, given aid or comfort or participated in insurrection uh, from ever holding federal office again. Seems pretty relevant. There are criminal statutes against seditious conspiracy and treason. And there are some of the laws like the 1871 Anti-KKK Enforcement Act. So th this stuff's all sort of coming back. And and it's, it's you know, gerrymandering has become a devastating uh, sort of desperate partisan art form, right? Where, you know, they're having a fight in Ohio right now, North Carolina and, and Tennessee. They're trying to divide Nashville into three districts called cracking and packing to make them all Republican, despite the fact it's a democratic city. And and so we, we see these fights going on in real time. But the, the redistricting of 1870 wasn't real good either. There was an attempt to completely manipulate the vote there. I mean, it's actually one of the tragic ironies. All of a sudden, the South got greater representation in the Electoral College because they would actually count the formerly enslaved as citizens. But then the white community came in and ensured that they kept all that power while benefiting from the increased weight of representation in Congress and Electoral College. So that's why, I mean, you know, you have former con Confederates sitting on the Supreme Court in some decisions that, you know, rolled back, you know, declared civil rights acts from the 1870s unconstitutional. We can nerd out on, on a lot of these details, and, and I'm happy to do it, but we probably don't have that kind of time. But I mentioned them just as Easter eggs to figure folks to, to go back and, and look at the history again. But, but the point is, I think, to, to take the redemptive lessons out of all this. You asked about the triumphalism. You know, Lincoln doesn't enter Richmond as a conquering hero. You know, maybe I'll read that. Please. I'm going to read you the, the inter introduction to the book. April 4th, 1865. Abraham Lincoln walked into the burning Confederate capital, uphill from the river, passing abandoned slave markets on his right, holding his son's Tad's hand on the boy's 12th birthday. After four years of civil war, President of the United States was in Richmond. Now he knew all the suffering had not been in vain. Liberty and union would defeat slavery and secession. He did not stride into the city like a conquering hero flanked by a vast army. Instead, he arrived on a longboat with a small crew, including an admiral, bodyguard, and a dozen sailors who acted as oarsmen. There was no military escort waiting to greet them as they scraped ashore. They were strangers in a strange land, wandering past burnt-out buildings that jutted up like tombstones as smoke billowed against a blue sky. A low murmur rose among the ruins at the sight of the six-foot-four man in black, slightly stooped, topped by a signature stovepipe hat. It was the sound of rumor turning to revelation. A crowd of liberated slaves gathered around Lincoln. They grabbed at his clothes and fell at his feet. Don't kneel to me, Lincoln gently rebuked them. That is not right. You must kneel to God only and thank him for the liberty you will afterward enjoy. And he walks up the hill over time. And there's these extraordinary moments where he is restrained. There's one moment where Lincoln stops to wipe his brow. An older black man approaches the president, took off his hat, placing it over his heart, saying, May the good Lord bless you, President Lincoln. The president responded by removing his own hat and bowed in return. And here's what a reporter named Charles Coffin from the Boston Journal wrote at the time. It was a bow that upset the forms, laws, customs, and ceremonies of centuries. It was a death shock to chivalry, a mortal wound to caste. 
He ultimately makes his way to the Jefferson Davis White House, sits in the chair. There's no triumphalism. He sits, he looks tired. He asks for a glass of water, but he really wants to talk and get a feeling for the people. He wants to send a message that we are going to find a way to work and live together again. It's going to take time, but he instructs the soldiers to not have any acts of disrespect, but he wants to protect the rights of the newly freed. And, and one, one other moment, because it's a great speech that I found. He's standing on the front steps of the Confederate Capitol here, and he's speaking to a crowd of newly freed slaves, but he's flanked by black soldiers. And he gives a quick address that's recounted in this one soldier's memoir. Here we are. He quotes Thomas Jefferson off the top of his head in a way that's pretty extraordinary. He basically says, you are now free, as free as the air. Your so-called masters no longer have any power over you. Here we are. Although you have been deprived of your God-given rights by your so-called masters, you are now as free as I am, he says to the newly liberated slaves. For God created all men free, giving each the same rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's extraordinary. He's coming up with that on the fly. He's quoting Jefferson in Richmond in sight of the Capitol on the steps of the former Confederate White House and to a crowd of newly liberated slaves while flanked by black Union soldiers in uniform. It's really one of the most dramatic moments in American history. And it takes place right here. And, and I, I, I was privileged at a, a park ranger named Michael Gorman take me on the route up from the river to the Capitol. So we did the walk that Washington did. It's uphill. On a hot day, you know, that'll wind you. And then toward the, the Confederate uh, the mansion and saw where Lincoln sat. It, it's really just so piled high with drama. It's a cinematic moment. And, and it, it deserves more centrality, I think, in our shared American story than it's gotten today. I hope this helps a bit. John Avalon, in the few minutes we have left with you, just a personal anecdote. My producer, Claire Morgan, and I recorded one of our pilots for Full Disclosure way back in late 2013 in Shaco Bottom, yards actually from the former Goodwin Slave Jail. Mm. And it's one of those things that kind of metaphorically and literally subterranean thing. There are bones. There are things that have been repressed and forgotten for a while. Richmond thought it was going to build a great minor league stadium down there. Uh, now that Monument Avenue is kind of, at least for the for the time, been put aside, a horrific kind of Holocaust caliber thing happened there. And as a Jew, I always talk to my in-laws the fact that Richmond has a Holocaust museum. It still doesn't have a full-fledged monument to the atrocities that happened there from the docks of Manchester to the slave jails. The fact that if you do an excavation right now, you'll find human remains. In fact, they did at, at MCV, Medical College of Virginia. Hmm. What's next? That's too big an open-ended question for someone like me to answer. Because nominally, an outsider can say, well, your monuments are down, finished, move on. Well, I, I think it's a matter of reckoning and reconciling. We need to confront our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. There is an attempt sometimes to resist a confrontation uh, with our history or uh, under the auspices of free speech to suppress some history that makes people uncomfortable. There's no right to be not made uncomfortable in a process of civic education among, in a self-governing society. We are not defined by our past, but we are continuing a story that was already underway when we were born. And we have to recognize that we have a sense of responsibility to learn the whole story and then to improve upon it when we briefly get to write our own chapter. 
That does not mean we are solely defined by the past. One of the reasons I think it's important to take these political figures off the pedestal and to understand them as people eye to eye is it makes their wisdom more accessible and it, it makes maybe inspires us a little bit. They don't seem so impossible. There's another aspect to it. It's actually the epigraph of the book. It's a very obscure Lincoln quote from the night after he won the 1864 election. But I think it sums up the point of applied history, which is useful wisdom. We want to be guided by our history, not imprisoned by it. Part of the idea of the fight for peace is that even as a leader, even in a war, you can imagine a future that is not predetermined by the pain of the past or the present. That's really important. Here's what Lincoln says that night. He said, human nature will not change. In any gr future great national trial, compared with men of this, we shall have as weak and as strong, as silly and as wise, as bad and as good. Let us therefore study the incidents of this as philosophy to learn wisdom from, and none of them as wrongs to be revenged. That, it seems to me, is the key. That's the reason I began the book with it. It's a study of history as philosophy to learn wisdom from, to apply to our own lives as we chart a path into the future, not as wrongs to be revenged. But you need to understand your history. You need to know your history. And that is a process of becoming that we are still engaging in. But we need to confront our history as philosophy to learn wisdom from, understanding that human frailty human nature actually doesn't change. And that requires a degree of moral humility as we confront each other, opponents, and even the past. You know, one of the things Lincoln did is he combined moral courage with moderation, that spirit of empathy, the politics of the golden rule, trying to treat other people as you would like to be treated. That's really transformational stuff. And it's exactly why we can learn so much from Lincoln today. And we, can, we have an obligation to learn from history today as philosophy to learn wisdom from, not as wrongs to be revenged. That's the opposite of reconciliation. And that's where we need to steer towards, a horizon of reconciliation. And that's what Lincoln tried to do. In closing, you hear murmurs, whispers about blue versus gray replaced by red versus blue. You know, certainly at any point in history, you can say we were polarized. You could say law and order under Nixon. You could talk about the, the perilous 1960s. You can talk about, I don't know, the, the segregation of the civil service under Woodrow Wilson. But something feels especially pungent about it, at least in my lifetime, starting with Unite the Right and then the official kind of salutary neglect of that in the White House. And then January 6th. And then the fact that what calls itself the party of Lincoln was largely okay with January 6th. Abraham Lincoln would not recognize the Republican Party today as a matter of philosophic principles. It was a moderate progressive party at the time, and the Southern Democrats were conservative populists. But, but we need to be careful about being too sort of careless about the, the, the cont applying contemporary labels to the past. What you need to do is sort of look at the underlying principles, the policies, and, and, and you can hear some echoes of the rhetoric. What's particularly troubling to me, of course, is confronting the fact that the big lie has metastasized in one political party. Um, that is a fundamental threat, not just to democracy, but to truth itself, to our ability to reason together, which is what democracy depends upon. And democracy depends upon an assumption of goodwill among fellow citizens and the ability to reason together to solve common problems for the public good. The big lie is so insidious because even after power, those old levers of fear and greed seem to be 
creating a cult-like atmosphere where people are afraid to speak the truth or confront the truth. That's a fundamental danger from which a lot of things flow. In the fullness of time, it may be seen as a a panicked reaction to demographic change, which we have dealt with in the past, and we will transcend over time. I am optimistic fundamentally. Democracies are stronger than tribal dictatorships every time. We are messy. We are chaotic at times, but we do have a strength that comes from free people living in concert. We're going to have to learn that again. But one thing that I always remember is a quote from Ulysses S. Grant that I had to check three times because it seemed so surreally perfect to the challenges we are confronting today. And he said it in 1875 in Des Moines, Iowa, he's president of the United States now. And he said, if we are to have a second civil war, the dividing line won't be Mason and Dixon's. He said it will be between patriotism and intelligence on the one hand and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. I almost say that with some regret because it implies moral superiority that will not lead us out of this. But it's important to call things what they are. Civil War was about slavery and in confronting a big lie and a cult-like dynamic that we see in our politics today that's a threat to our democracy and our ability to reason together, we need to confront that as well with a spirit of empathy, no matter how challenging that is right now, because God knows it is. But we need to try to find a way to reason together and reach out. And Lincoln wanted accountability for the Confederate leaders who'd willfully misled and abandoned the nation. But he did want forgiveness for the rank and file that he felt had been misled by those leaders. And that's maybe a lesson we could take as well going forward. The book is Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. John Avalon, thank you so much for joining us on stage. Of course, you're always welcome back on the show. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Dean Mickey Quinones, Andy Miner, and the wonderful team at our gracious host, U of R's Robin School. Our producer tonight is Claire Morgan at Notterly. We broadcast across the great Commonwealth on WVTF, Virginia Public Radio, Radio IQ. A shout out to our listeners on WERA, WPVM, and KPPQ. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your station. Of course, we podcast to NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening. Back with you next week. Yeah.